Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's IR Insights webinar, a guide to managing psychosocial hazards in the workplace, eliminating risks and effectively dealing with complaints. It's my pleasure um, to welcome you to the presentation and also to be presenting today with um, Fiona Bajelli, co-founder and director of PAX People. How are you today, Fiona? Very well. Thank you, Ruth. Pleasure to be presenting with you as well. It's a shame we're not in the same location, but I'm sure we Next can re rectify that in the future. Um, so before we begin the presentation, I'd like to commence with an acknowledgement of, of the country on which we are fortunate enough to meet today. Nangamalari, I'm Auntie Manya, and on behalf of Dentons and everyone here today, I would like to recognise the stories, traditions, and living cultures of the land on which we meet. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and their continued connections to land, sea, and community. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. Nangaman Ladi. So today we're going to be talking about psychosocial hazards. This is a really broad topic. There are potentially many hazards and risks in workplaces. Um, and employers attending today might be in, in different places in terms of where they're up to in identifying risks and assessing those risks and putting in place um, uh, steps to manage those risks. Um, it's important to bear in mind that um, no two workplaces will be the same, but many of you will have similar psychosocial hazards um, and risks across your organisation. Um, in addition to the psychosocial risks and hazards, there are many intersecting duties that are relevant, including duties of officers, duties of workers, obligations to consult. So with all of this material, um, we're not, we won't have time to go through everything today, but we're going to be providing an overview of the legislative framework. We'll provide some general tips on um, your obligations and how to identify risks and assess risks. Um, and then we, I'll be handing over to Fiona. Fiona and PAX people have expertise in a number of areas related to psychosocial risks and managing those risks, including leadership training and coaching and managing organisational change. But today she will be focusing mainly on conflict management. Um, we thought we'd talk about that given that conflict is such a large part of the day-to-day -day risks in most organisations. If you, we're more than happy to take questions, which we will answer at the end. So if you have any questions, please feel free to enter them into the Q&A function, um, which you should be able to access from your screens. So dealing first of all with um, the regulation for psychosocial risks and hazards. Um, regulation is in place um, through all of those jurisdictions that have the model um, WHS laws in place. Um, so that includes the Commonwealth and New South Wales. Um, jurisdictions which do not yet have the regulations in place include South Australia and Victoria. Victoria, of course, has um, does not have the model laws, it has its own um, Occupational Health and Safety Act, but there is a regulation um, that, uh, a draft regulation 
that has been made in Victoria and there's been consultation in relation to that and it's expected to be introduced soon and that is in more or less the same terms as the regulation which applies in other states and at a Commonwealth level. So the impetus for the regulation dealing with psychosocial hazards comes from a review of the model um, health and safety laws and basically was recognised that um, psychosocial, sorry, psychological um, injury is a really large part of um, organisations, the life of organisations or the life of employees. Um, and on average, work-related psychological injuries have longer recovery times, higher costs, and um, as most of you on the call today would be aware, there's a lot of time spent managing psychological injuries and more time away from work for those who are injured. And so more was, uh, the recommendation was that more should be done to manage um, those hazards which cause psychological injuries in the workplace. And so what was introduced was a, um, a regulation which defines psychosocial hazards and psychosocial risks. So a, psycho, a psychosocial hazard is a hazard that arises from or relates to the design or management of work or a work environment or plant at a workplace or workplace interactions or behaviours and which may cause psychological harm whether or not the hazard may also go on to cause physical harm. Psychosocial risks are a risk to the health or safety of a worker or other person from a psychosocial hazard. Um, so in terms of um, sometimes when we're discussing these things, it, it can sound a little bit abstract. Uh, so some examples of um, psychosocial hazards, um, which may help you in understanding what we'll be discussing today, will include um, employees who have really um, high workloads or high job demands may also be employees who turn up to work each day and don't really understand what they're doing there. They don't have much work to do. They have very poor understanding of what they're supposed to be doing or control over their job. Um, poor support from management can also be a psychosocial hazard, uh, inadequate reward or recognition. Um, uh, Employees who work remotely or who are isolated in their work, uh, that can also be a psychosocial hazard. A poor physical environment, um, exposure to traumatic events or material. Um, and then in addition, psychosocial hazards also arise in relation to behaviour, which will also be um, contrary to other legislation, including violence and aggression in the workplace, bullying, harassment, and sexual harassment. And then of course, as we will be delving into quite, with Fiona, we will be delving um, deeply into conflict and poor workplace relationships, which are a, can be a psychosocial hazard and poor organizational change, consultation and management. So these are all, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but it's just some examples of psycho, psychosocial hazards, which you might find in the workplace which can help you give some context to what we will be discussing today. So in terms of how this fits in with the legislative framework, so first of all, we have the Work Health and Safety Act, so the model laws which are in place at a Commonwealth level and in most states. Um, the Workplace Health and Safety Act refers to um, persons conducting a business or undertaking 
I'll just use the, the, the term organisation today. So an organisation must ensure so far as, as is reasonably practicable, the health and safety of its workers. So that's the, the, the general duty or the primary duty. In Victoria, this is described as, um, or the duty is, an employer must, so far as is reasonably practicable, provide and maintain for employees of the employer a working environment that is safe and without risks to health. Now, health includes both physical and psychological health. And in addition, officers of an organisation must exercise due diligence to ensure that the organisation complies with its obligations to ensure the health and safety of its workers. So then the, um, as a result of the review of the model WHS laws was then determined that there should be a regulation which provides um, a greater definition uh, around psychosocial hazards in the workplace. So the, the regulation includes the definitions we've already discussed today of psychosocial hazards and psychosocial risks, and then specifically requires that employers must manage risks arising from psychosocial hazards. So, so this involves identifying reasonably foreseeable hazards that give rise to psychosocial risks eliminating those risks so far as is reasonably practicable. And if it's not possible to eliminate the risks, then um, um, taking measures to um, minimise the impact of those risks. And then um, organisations are required to uh, implement and maintain control measures to ensure the risks stay eliminated or minimised. The um, model uh, workplace health and safety regulations provide quite a bit of detail around control measures that an organisation must implement in order to eliminate psychosocial risks, or if, you, if they can't be eliminated, to minimise the risks. Um, it includes a number of factors that must be taken into account by the organisation. I'm not going to run through all of those today. You will be provided with um, the slides after um, today's um, presentation. So I recommend that you go back and have a look at this slide and, and the detailed information given on control measures. Um, but basically for organisations approaching this issue, the first step is to identify psychosocial hazards. Um, and Following the identification of hazards, the next step is to assess those risks and then put in place measures either to eliminate those risks or um, to um, take steps to minimise the impact of the risks, put in place control measures and then also have a review of those control measures. Um, and all of this must be must take place within the context of consultation. So it's important to be talking to your employees as you're going through this process of identification and assessment of risks. So when looking at psychosocial hazards, it, it might help to be able to think about hazards as falling into three different groups. So um, the first group of psychosocial hazards is hazards that exist by reason of the nature of the work that your employees perform. So there might be hazards that most 
um, employers within your industry will experience. So for example, um, employees who, who perform really long hours, and that might be a nature of the work that is performed, employees performing fly-in, fly-out work, or employees who are exposed as a part of their work to traumatic incidents. So perhaps employers working in emergency services, or you might have um, social workers who are working with children who um, have been exposed to abuse. These are all psychosocial hazards that are inherent in the work that is being um, conducted by your organisation. So they can't be eliminated altogether, but it's about um, taking steps to minimise the, minimize the risk. So moving then from another group of um, psychosocial hazards, which are those that, that are not so much industry-based, but inherent to your particular organisation. So part of this might be because you have an employee population that is made up of vulnerable workers or young workers, you might have a lot of um, trainees. And alternatively, you, um, it's important to, ha to have a look at the history of complaints and claims that maybe there are some hazards that have been going on in your workplace for a period of time um, because you've got um, particular divisions where work is not designed adequately or there might be managers who have been causing um, particular problems. And part of looking at, looking for the hazards in your particular organisation involves reviewing complaints and claims to see if you've got any of these hazards. Um, another way in which you could determine whether there's hazards inherent to your particular organisation would include staff surveys, um, you have an obligation to consult with workers. This consultation process might also flush out some hazards which are inherent to your organisation. Um, in addition, you should also have a look at, and this is all organisations should look at this, um, you should have an audit of your systems. So making sure that there are actually adequate systems in place um, for employees to be able to raise concerns. So and this involves alternatives to you can make a complaint to your manager. So for example, um, can employees make anonymous complaints? And then looking at those anonymous complaints can also help you identify hazards which are inherent to your um, organisation. And then finally, there's a, I guess a third um, a type of psychosocial hazard which is those that are sort of less collective in nature and which arise because of individual complaints or issues. Um, so these will be um, hazards which perhaps don't exist at this point in time, but which, are, which may arise in the future as a result of poor work design or conflict in the workplace. Um, and it's important that you have in place now adequate measures for dealing with those complaints, which will include um, training your managers to better equip them to be able to deal with those sorts of hazards when they arise. So the, a proactive approach to once you've identified the psychosocial hazards, um, the, you need to embark on a process of assessing the risk and also then 
um, looking at ways to either eliminate the risks or to manage those risks so that um, the harm from them is minimised. So there's proactive approaches you can take. Again, it's really important to consult with workers through either through um, WHS consultative committees or alternatively um, through um, other, you can um, open up the consultation through to general teams, including team meetings that, that are, um, are held um, on a regular basis. You can discuss with your workers their experience of explaining to them what psychosocial hazards are and um, any hazards which they might experience um, in the workplace. It's also important when you move on to the next step of making decisions about eliminating or managing risks that you consult with workers about steps that you're taking to eliminate or manage risks to see whether or not they will, uh, are those um, measures really going to do the job you want them to do. Another proactive approach uh, is um, through training. So this, this will be, or training will involve um, talking to your managers about the best way to deal with complaints. And this should involve um, having a dialogue with your managers where you're trying to encourage people to discuss openly problems that they have at work and moving away from a blame culture, because a blame culture where um, if something goes wrong and people are worried about getting into trouble, um, then people tend to um, not be as open in the workplace. They tend not to say anything about particular complaints. Managers have a tendency to sweep things under the carpet rather than say, look, this is what is going on in my team because they don't want to get into um, trouble for um, any issues. So you want to be training your managers on the best way to deal with complaints in a way that encourages openness, um, identifying problems and looking for a resolution rather than people turning a blind eye or, as I said, sweeping things under the carpet. Training will also involve encouraging managers to regularly review systems of work, workloads, work design, um, is the work evenly distributed? Are, people, are people's um, skills best being utilised such that their um, uh, job satisfaction or the, such that they are satisfied in their jobs? It's also important to have in place effective complaint mechanisms. And effective complaint mechanisms usually means more than one option for people to make a complaint. Um, encouraging people to speak to their managers rather than everything, everything um, being escalated to human resources. Uh, it's also important for you to put in place a regular audit of control measures and systems. So when you put in place um, any of these systems, including training, having a check-in six months later, 12 months later, to work out whether or not these measures you've um, put in place are successful. Um, the, uh, another important um, measure or proactive measure in, in handling psychosocial hazards will be to ensure workers are well resourced to cope with work demands and this includes your managers. Um, acknowledging and rewarding employees for their work and finally it's important to bear in mind um, to keep at it. The, the issue with psychosocial hazards um, is that it 
it is such a broad area and it can be sometimes hard to determine whether or not what you're actually doing um, is working, whether you're identifying the hazards um, or whether your identification of hazards has been comprehensive enough, whether the measures you've put in place are actually working. And it's important that you keep going with this, with this process because there will be, particularly with a number of um, these programs, there will be a long lead time before you will start to see the impact of some of these changes. Now, in terms of those employees who um, present with psychosocial hazards, so will we so talk to the or make a complaint to the organisation about something at work which is causing them stress? It's important to be responsive to issues that are raised by employees. Don't let things fester. Don't let weeks go by where complaints are not dealt with. Um, meeting employees rather than having extensive email exchanges is also a really good way of dealing with these issues. Um, have a look at whether or not particular complaints that are made by employees can be dealt with um, quickly in terms of redesigning work, perhaps reviewing hours of work. There might be a fairly simple solution to a problem that's raised by an employee there can be a bit of a tendency for employers to sort of rush off and say, we need to investigate this complaint. Um, I do a lot of investigations and uh, investigations invariably are costly on a number of levels. Um, and so if there is a way of reviewing, a, sitting down with an employee and reviewing a problem and implementing um, a solution um, that is fairly practical um, then uh, without sort of avoiding a detailed um, analysis of all of the evidence and getting four or five employees involved, then employers um, should, should look for that option with some hazards that are presented. Um, conflict and poor workplace relationships should also, in any of those issues, should be addressed and not ignored. I'll leave that. Um, that matter for Fiona, who will talk about that um, in some detail. Um, the, the important issue here is that uh, these kinds of problems do not fix themselves. So it's important to get involved early. Now, in terms of the, for those of you who are on the call today, there are many of you, some of you may have already started the process of identifying psychosocial hazards. Um, and there will be others who are at the sort of the start of an assessment and need to get, what you will need to get is senior management buy-in. Um, now, first of all, the first step in senior management buy-in is that you will need to explain what psychosocial hazards are. And trust me, from my own experience, that will be met by a quizzical look from many people including comments to the effect that we don't have any psychos in our workplace, so that's that problem taken care of. Um, so when you're going to speak to senior management, make sure that you um, can clearly explain what psychosocial hazards are and give some examples of where they might lie in your workplace. And there are then um, two approaches to getting senior management buy-in. One of them is the usual approach for workplace health and safety matters. You can talk about the costs and say, if we don't comply with our obligations, 
then the regulator could get involved. There's all these penalties. Penalties run into the millions of dollars. The organisation's going to have to pay lots in fines. People are going to jail. It's all a disaster. All the employees will leave us. That's that's the sort of the, the cost side of things. That might work for senior managers in your organisation. That might be the best way to get their buy-in. Alternatively, you can also talk to senior management about the benefits of a process of identifying psychosocial hazards and eliminating those, those hazards. A, a lot of these hazards are actually related to workplace culture, which is something that employees and prospective employees talk about quite a lot, um, that workplace culture is really important to them. And workplace culture is a bit of a nebulous concept, but as a sort of generally, it means that people or employees want to feel safe at work and they want to feel respected at work. And if you as an organisation are going through a process of eliminating those things which cause psychological injury, you are necessarily making your employees feeling safer at work and chances are you're making them feel um, respect, more respected as well. And if you can eliminate many of these psychosocial hazards, you'll have better performing employees. It'll also help you to identify where your work systems are perhaps not, uh, not where they should be. They're, you can identify uneven distribution of work or perhaps some people are working where some people are working too much, some people are working too little, there might be mismatches in, in jobs, people who have skills that aren't being properly utilised. If you're going through a process of identifying psychosocial hazards, this might help you identify a lot of these issues. So you end up actually functioning better as an organisation, your employees are happier and um, you, you are therefore um, having a workplace where people are um, more productive and more efficient. And so just back to, for those of you who, who would like to focus on the costs of um, ignoring psychosocial hazards in order to um, get senior management support, this sets out um, some of the some of the costs. So in terms of employees, if employees aren't happy in their workplace, which is obviously what happens as a result of psychosocial hazards, um, employees can resign, put in workers' compensation claims, make complaints about bullying or sexual harassment if the behaviour is, is getting more extreme. Um, there's also the um, action that can be taken by the regulator. I will say in relation to this that we're seeing regulators taking an interest in psychosocial hazards and the management of risks in workplace workplaces already. There can be a tendency, I think, for some employers to think, you know, safe work is just interested in, you know, building sites where people, you know, don't have proper safety measures in place. And, you know, they're, inter they're only interested when someone seriously physically injures themself, themselves in a workplace. But that is actually not the case. Had a recent experience with some clients of the regulator taking an, a, a real interest in um, complaints mechanisms that are, were in place, policies, and a, an employer who was um, seemingly not doing anything to address 
complaints that were being made by an employee about what can best be described as a, a work design issue. So it's really important that um, organisations understand that this is something that the regulator is taking um, a good deal of interest in. So now I'm just going to hand over to Fiona, who's going to move us away from a more generalised uh, review of psychosocial hazards and um, talk about ways in which to manage some of those psychosocial hazards. Thanks, Ruth. Okay, thank you for that. So uh, my presentation or this half of the presentation will focus on one of the most common forms of psychosocial hazards in the workplace, which is conflict. Um, and I'm not referring to the kind of conflict that is that meets the legal definition of bullying. I'm talking about the kind of conflict that has a significant impact on people's well-being and performance at work. Um, so what we know is that conflict typically arises because people view things with their own unique perspectives, values, personalities. So where there's a clash between those things, conflict arises. So you can imagine how broad that is. And I've got this little caption here or little cartoon here of someone saying, I'm a considerate person who never intrudes on another's privacy and the other person saying, she's cold and distant. She never asks me how things are. She's rude to me. So that's to highlight that the conflicts arising there through perception. The person has told themselves a narrative that one's behaviour is rude through their own value of communication or their own value of engagement. The other person values privacy and perhaps is a little more introverted and keeps a distance and sees that as appropriate. So this is, this is where conflict stems from. Okay. So Ruth's talked about psychosocial hazards and they are very broad, but conflict being a psychosocial hazard tends to increase where people are experiencing stress, not only at work, but also outside of work. And leaders now, people leaders, business leaders have an enormous amount to navigate. And you, many of you on the call will be able to relate to this because we've had some uh, we've got some current issues that are impacting people's resilience and therefore their reactions to situations at work. For example, uh, the impact of COVID and, and the impact that had on people's propensity to want to be physically in the workplace or work more from home. So there's a whole variety of different appetites, risk appetites about how people should approach the workplace. And that, that scenario is leading to people uh, having lower resilience and tending to clash on things and there's, there's an increase in conflict around that particular issue. Uh, we're also finding that people are experiencing a lot of personal stress because of the cost of living crisis and the rise in interest rates. So a lot of people that we see in our practice are saying that they're feeling that they're engaging in behaviours at work because they've got so much stress in their own personal life that they are fearing for their job security uh, and they're finding that they're unable to cope as well as they possibly once were when they didn't have quite so much personal stress. Uh, balancing work and carers' responsibilities is something that's always been around. But some people experience what we call the sandwich effect, where they've got children to take care of. And then sometimes they've got elderly parents as well that they're taking care of. So again, when things happen at work, they're often triggered because their home life has... Uh, a particular heightened level of stress. And then the other thing that's 
um, that we should put ourselves in the in the shoes of employees, and that is that organisations engage in a massive amount of change. It's something that organisations seem to, I mean, we talk about it as innovation and constant improvement and all of those sorts of things. But constant change does impact employees. That's even things to like, even things like changes to business models or structures in organisations, they have an impact on the way people experience their day at work. And we know that if those things aren't handled properly, uh, people tend to engage in behaviours where conflict is more likely. So the point of all of this is that people leaders are navigating complex aspects of our, our social environment where conflict has a higher incidence. So from my perspective, the most commonly occurring forms of conflict in the workplace that I see and that people come to talk to us about are the following. And I just want to go into these a little bit. And I know many of you working in human resources will absolutely relate to these. And that is the first one. I put, put it there as the first one for a very specific reason. And that is the broken relationship following a workplace investigation. I don't think I've ever seen a workplace investigation where at the end of it, people are at peace with one another or feeling positively with one about one another. And that doesn't just include the respondent and the complainant in the uh, investigation. Often witnesses become uh, very aggrieved by the investigation and the subject matter of the investigation. Factions form in the investigation uh, throughout that process. So where you do have an investigation taking place, do already turn your mind to what am I going to be left with at the end of it? And that the likely scenario is some form of broken relationship and workplace conflict. Uh, Ruth's already touched on this, and that is management styles at work. So that often occurring between a manager and a direct report, but we hear, um, we hear descriptions of micromanagement, undermining, uh, poor style of engagement and management, not enough direction, all those sorts of things. Feedback being delivered poorly with emotional and personal language. Now, the point I'd like to make here is this is really about people leadership capability. It's a, You can think that sounds very simple and very easy, but really it's important that people leaders, when they're delivering feedback, focus on the work and feedback about uh, the outcomes rather than the person themselves. So avoiding that emotional and personal language, which is where we start to stray into people feeling very aggrieved and hurt feelings and often claims of bullying around that. Uh, the obvious, rude, rude tone, lack of polite behaviour, a culture of incivility, an aggressive blame culture that Ruth spoke about earlier. That is huge in terms of workplace conflict. Then there are, if we go back to my point at the start of the presentation about perception, a lot of people come to us very upset because they perceive that when they're not invited to certain meetings at work or social events, that there's more to it. So they build a narrative in their own minds that they're being excluded, they're being outcast. Um, and that often leads to some, some very serious conflict that often people don't expect. They, didn't, they forgot to invite someone or they just didn't think to include someone. Um, and when it's left unresolved, it can, it can be very damaging. 
Now, change being implemented and handled poorly for all of the people out there in human resources, you know all about this, the restructures. Not enough communication, poor engagement, very little information presented, often because people are scared to talk to the employees or scared that it'll get out into the media or something like that. Uh, limited choices for people where there's, where there's change. And this is the big one, behaviour that appears to lack caring about the impact of change. Back to perception. If you behave in a way that sends a message to people that you don't really care about how the change is impacting them personally, they become very aggrieved. You'll see workplace conflict arising very, very quickly. Um, and then the last two Ruth's already spoken about, lack of role clarity, that lack of role delineation and inadequate reward and recognition. Now, this is one of my favourite little cartoons here to go back to blame culture. And if you sort of study the picture, you can just imagine it. Um, and the caption there that says, this promotion means you'll be getting the blame directly from me. Now, I can actually relate to that, and I'm sure many of you can too, um, but I find that I find it humorous in a in a uh, in an unfortunate way, but but often people do feel like that. You know, promotion isn't always a happy thing, and blame cultures uh, result in a lot of complaints in the workplace. So we know that people leaders need to manage conflict. Therefore, it's a core capability element and skill set that people leaders need. They must develop conflict management capability in the workplace. For those of you that were around in the 90s and the early 2000s in the workplace, um, you might have heard people talking about conflict in this kind of way. So Joe and Kerry are having a problem at the moment at work. They don't get along. They have all sorts of issues with one another. Where So we've talked to them about it and we've said to them, your problem, you guys, you guys have got to sort it out. And either if you can't sort it out, either one of you's going, and one one of you one of you are going to go, or both of you are going to go. Now I've heard that many times. I mean, a long time ago, but I've heard that many times. And I think that was easy because you just saw people used to see workplace conflict as a problem just between those two individuals or the individuals involved in the conflict. But Ruth's made it very clear in her presentation. The regulators made it clear, and the legislation's made it clear that actually. It is the business of the organisation to, to be involved and manage and help people through those conflicts. So it's not quite as simple as, as once upon a time. Okay, so we've already talked about positive, high-performance workplace culture and really what, I, what I'd like to say about that is if you have got a culture where you've got people leaders and the organisation caring about people and ensuring that they don't feel upset as a result of, of conflict or you're helping people work through it, you are much more likely to attract and retain top talent. And that's what organisations need to be prosperous and, and successful. Okay, so these are just some very practical tips, my kind of top tips to reduce workplace conflict. So this is think of this as before you know the conflict, the conflict exists. So the first thing on my top tips is early identification of conflict. How do you, as people leaders, or how do you help your people leaders identify conflict before they come to you with it? Well, a very simple thing you can do 
Firstly, make sure your people leaders are having one-on-one -on -one meetings as a routine thing with their employees and actually suggest that they ask in those meetings, how are you feeling about your workplace relationships? How are you getting along with your colleagues? Now, that sounds, it might sound odd to some people, but actually they're the sort of conversations that will help you identify whether there are problems bubbling along the earlier you catch them, the easier they are to resolve, okay? Then the second thing, which is a really important thing, is build conflict management capability within your organisation, but particularly for your people leaders. Now, you can do that a number of ways, but my suggestion is that you engage in training with your people leaders and, and other employees in the organisation. Um, Think about training for having difficult conversations and managing conflict. The, the benefit of training managers and people in the organisation is that you're giving people models that they can follow rather than expecting people to manage conflict based on their own natural ability or personality. So you're really covering all kinds of personalities if you give people some tools and tips on how to manage conflict. There's also training on bystander intervention for below the line behaviours. That's more of an organisation wide style of training, but it's a very special kind of training that involves some very careful planning. Uh, but that has a very positive effect on uh, workplace cultures. And we've seen a number of organisations engage in these and employees really do uh, respond very positively to them. This is a very practical and easy thing to do, and I urge you to do this after the presentation. Go and have a look at the code of conduct in your organisation and have a look and see whether it covers respectful and professional behaviour. A lot of them do not. Okay, really important to have some very clear statements about your policy at work, uh, outlining to people that respectful, professional and civil behaviour is, is a critical component of their employment contract and, the, and their ability to engage in the workplace. Um, and think about adding to that some training on the code of conduct to contextualise it to the particular workplace with some practical examples um, to help people apply the meaning of what respectful and professional behaviour looks like in the context of your workplace. We all know that there are certain teams that every year seem to present a problem. You say that's that division, they're always unhappy, you know, that's just what you expect, that's the accountants, they're like that, you know, they're always, they've always got problems or, you know, well actually get underneath what it really is, don't make assumptions and the way you can do that is to conduct a culture review. Some of you that conduct employee surveys will get your scores and you'll see that there's that low performing team that have the, uh, very, the red legend, the colour next to it that says there they are again with the, with the very low score on employee engagement, low scores on collaboration. The people leaders in that area get scored very lowly. We'll have a look at that through a culture review and get some help on some very specific recommendations and some tailored things you can do to help that particular team rather than just make assumptions and do some sort of broad brush approach that, that ends up being, um, it ends up being more effective if you are more tailored and targeted. 
Workplace and leadership coaching for people leaders is really helpful in reducing workplace conflict. You are often helping people leaders to engage in conversations that are very difficult for them and you're helping to um, promote courageous behaviour uh, and give them a variety of models for a variety of different personalities. So I have a number of people that are probably hopefully on the line today uh, that I work with and we work through scenarios so that they really can approach very, very tricky situations in their organisations in ways uh, to de-escalate risk, but also to get the very best outcomes for the business and the people. And then lastly, Ruth has given you a very, very good framework, um, and that is about managing risk around conflict. So be very deliberate in your HR strategies about ensuring that you've, you're taking a proactive approach to having initiatives that relate to conflict management um, and, and conflict reduction. So this is what to do. These are my tips about when you know the conflict exists, okay? So you've got the complaint, you've got the 45-page written complaint that lands on your desk that you'd rather not read at 5.30 on a Friday night, okay, but it's there. So what do you do about it? Well, firstly, what I would say is don't feel ashamed to seek advice. Really important to have a look at what the person's saying and seek some advice. I would recommend you do go to your employment lawyer. You can ring Ruth, but have a look, particularly if you see language in there like bullying. And I think just about everybody that feels aggrieved by someone says, I feel bullied. But sometimes it doesn't meet the legal definition of bullying. Uh, sometimes there are elements in the complaint, might not be the whole complaint, but there might be some elements in there of things like discrimination, sexual harassment, um, suggestions that the person might make a workers' compensation claim or they may have experienced some sort of injury as a result of the conflict, or there's high levels of absenteeism as a result of the person feeling that they can't uh, be at work because of the conflict, or very significant work performance issues. So, these are, these are areas where seeking legal advice is very, very helpful in ensuring that you're managing the conflict appropriately and holistically for the organisation. Uh, Ruth talked earlier about workplace investigations. I'd just like to reiterate that and emphasise that I agree with what Ruth has said, and that is do check to see if the workplace investigation is necessary. A workplace investigation that is not necessary will avoid a whole lot of conflict and a whole lot of stress in your organisation. But there are many circumstances where the workplace investigation is necessary, uh, particularly where you need to take action on the findings. Uh, so your employment lawyer is the best person to help you there or your in-house counsel. Uh, you can call a conflict resolution practitioner as well if you, if you know you want to go ahead and seek a conflict resolution process. If I get calls where I think there are elements that need to be dealt with by a lawyer, I will always direct them uh, to seeking legal advice. And many of you will know that you know, you've, you've contacted me. In fact, I've referred you on to Ruth because there are elements in there that need special attention. Um, the other thing that is important, we'll go through some of the processes in a minute, uh, specific conflict resolution processes in a minute, but do keep records about the actions you take to address and manage conflict. Make file notes, keep little folders of emails, do those things because if down the track you do get approached 
by the regulator or something blows up, it's really important that you're able to show that you took as many steps as were necessary for the organisation and also for the employees in helping them through the conflict. Okay, workplace mediation, I would say, is one of the most effective ways to resolve conflict between employees at work if it is a suitable process. And if you approach a mediator that's qualified, they will be able to tell you whether mediation is uh, a suitable process or not. So I want to say just a few things about mediation because there's a lot to unpack. Um, but really for today, I just want to I just want to go through a few important things about it. And that is to say that mediation is a confidential structured process um, that's administered by an independent external qualified person. So not somebody in-house, not, not an internal uh, HR manager or uh, people leader. And the qualified media mediator will work with the parties to prepare them to be resolution oriented, to attend a confidential structured mediation with the party that they're in conflict with, to resolve the specific issues and differences that they have. Okay, but it's about finding a way of working together. That doesn't necessarily mean they need to agree, but they need to find a way to move forward together in a way that is functional and professional in the workplace. So whilst the mediation itself is confidential, where you have resolutions or an agreement that comes out of that mediation, they are owned by the organisation. And that's very helpful because the organisation can use those resolutions to hold the parties accountable to what they've agreed and support them in finding new ways of working together um, and moving forward in a more functional, respectful, professional uh, working relationship. It's very important that the person be independent and external to the organisation for the obvious, okay? So a mediator is really working with the parties uh, and they need to be free to express all of the things that they think and feel and they're not going to do that with somebody that's internal. The other thing is you want to de-risk it. So anything that I say confidentially to uh, or, or I discuss with parties is not going to come back on the organisation. I'm completely independent. So there's risks if you do things internally. We've already talked about the mediator needing to be qualified and licensed. But what I would suggest is if you are selecting a mediator and you want a workplace mediator, have a look at the mediator's background and see whether you think that mediator has enough experience and skills in being able to guide the parties in a workplace matter. Okay, so whilst you're neutral and independent as a mediator, you still need to be able to guide parties to be talking about the right kinds of things in an organisational setting. So it's helpful that somebody that's a workplace mediator has some kind of background in workplace uh, skills like HR employment law, employment relations and the like, people leadership, that people management, those sorts of things. A mediation is a safe and respectful process and it's often the first time parties after a long time start to engage in a way that is uh, respectful and speaking about their differences 
in a constructive way. So we, we say that the, the conflict capability starts in the mediation. So it's actually a great development opportunity as well for people. It builds conflict capability. It's a voluntary process. You cannot force people to participate in mediation. That's very effective because where people feel they've had the choice, they actually feel more engaged in the process. Um, and look, it's a highly effective risk mitigation tool and the parties decide on their own resolutions based on their own personalities, work environments, what they're capable of. So the chances of success from people deciding um, upon their own resolutions um, is more sustainable than resolutions you impose on people. Okay, so... Facilitated conversations are similar to mediations. The difference of with facilitated conversations compared to mediations is that parties can be directed to attend a facilitated conversation. Uh, usually an independent person uh, will coach parties beforehand to, before they attend the facilitated conversation to make sure that they are in a uh, focused and productive mindset rather than being in a combative positional mindset. Um, and often there's a people, always, there's a people leader present, and that's very effective because the people leader at that facilitated conversation will be providing direction, guidance, and often making final decisions. So facilitated conversations are really very helpful in cutting through the dynamics of hierarchy in an organisation because you've got the facilitator so mostly usually a conflict resolution practitioner, making sure that parties have uh, equal airspace and time and that there's respect in the process um, and that all of the issues that need to be spoken about are covered. Okay, and lastly, I want to talk about conflict management coaching. Now, a conflict coach works with parties or a party experiencing conflict to help them understand their own relationship with the conflict they're experiencing. What are the values underneath what has uh, triggered them to feel in conflict? Um, what do they, what, what needs of theirs are not being met? Um, and what is the impact of the conflict and the consequences? Um, and it's there to help the party break down the very well-entrenched narrative that they have so if you think about a time when you've been in conflict and you've gone and you've talked to your own friends or loved ones about it, what you'll find is people say things that um, they're trying to be supportive and they're well-intended, but they'll say things like, um, oh, that person sounds dreadful, you're absolutely right, how dare they, all those sorts of things. So what's happening there is your narrative is becoming more and more and more entrenched. And that's not helpful to put you into a resolution-oriented, future-focused mindset to find a way to be able to work with a person you're in conflict with. A conflict coach, on the other hand, will break down that narrative and, and help the person put themselves in the shoes, not only of the other person that they're in conflict with, but also others that they're working with in the organisation, to see the conflict from other perspectives but also to really understand the consequences of not resolving that conflict and the impacts that may have on them 
and the working environment. Now, I don't conduct any mediations or facilitated conversations without conflict management coaching because, um, in our opinion, we do not consider mediations and facilitated conversations to be nearly as successful without conducting that very important pre-work with people. And um, conflict management coaching does follow a very specific model. It's up there on the slide. It's called the Synergy Model. And I know a couple of you that are present today are trained in it. It is not an easy model to get your head around. I can assure you of that. But when you do, uh, it is a very, very useful model for resolving conflict. Okay. So I'm going to hand back over to Ruth. Uh, we do have a couple of questions that um, I'll read at, at the end, but thank you for listening to me and I'll pass you over to Ruth. Thanks, Fiona. <clears throat> I'm just, I'm conscious of time. We've only got a few more minutes until 1.30. Um, this slide just has a proposed action list for, for those of you who'd like to have lists. Um, this is a suggestion. It's not anything that is sort of prescribed by the legislation or anything, although it is based on um, your an organisation's uh, obligations. The first step for those of you who have yet to sort of really start looking at psychosocial hazards and risks is to identify the person who, in effect, will take initial responsibility or ownership of um, rolling out and the process of identifying hazards and risks in the organisation and what you're going to do to manage, eliminate or manage those risks. Um, at the planning stage, it's, it will be important early on to put in place how you're going to document the process. That's very important so that you can demonstrate later on in case anyone comes asking about what you've done to manage risks. You will have, um, hopefully have it all documented and easy to explain, this is what we've done. The regulator will be impressed, your lawyers will be happy and uh, anyone who takes over your job from you will also be very happy. And in fact, your future self will thank your current self for being so well organised. So um, also at this early stage, management buy-in, which we've talked about today is important. Um, and then beginning the process of identifying hazards and assessment of risks. This is sort of a long, uh, will be a long process. Don't forget to consult with your employees in relation to this. A good um, place to start uh, if you're really uncertain is to um, have an audit of complaints, claims, um, and look at your complaints mechanism to see whether or not it's adequate. If you've got any queries about that, please feel free to contact us. We can assist you in advising on effective complaints mechanisms. Um, employee surveys are also a good place to start. Um, and then finally, um, looking to implementation of training um, early on in the process so that you can get your, at the very least, even if the training is just explaining to your people what, psycho, what psychosocial hazards and risks are so that you can get the, everyone in the organisation thinking about it and involved. Um, so the time is 1.30. Perhaps, Fiona, one or two quick questions. Obviously, people on the call who need to jump off to something else, please feel free um, to do so. And um, thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, well, we've got five questions here. So I'll read one. This is from Maggie Kochone. Hello, Maggie. Um, wondering the bounds of an anonymous complaint 
under the WH&S Act and the employer's obligations in context of industri industrially, the other party has a right of reply in a complaint. Um, wondering the bounds of an anonymous complaint under the WHS Act and employer's obligations. Do you want to answer that, Ruth? Yes, I mean, I think that the issue that that presents there is um, it is a it is a complicated one in the sense that um, if you presenting allegations, you've got an anonymous complaint, but you're presenting um, allegations to or potentially presenting allegations to someone and asking them to respond um, to the allegations, even though they don't know um, who has made the allegations, the person, the respondent may well say, well, look, I don't want to participate in this process because I don't know who is making the complaint. Um, my, my recommendation would be to start on the process of investigating the um, anonymous complaint, um, even though you don't, you're not able to identify the, the person. I think you also need to factor in potentially whether there's any whistleblower issues here as well, in which case the organisation will have obligations to um, investigate. And uh, it is best for you to embark upon the process of having a look at the substance of the complaint and seeking a response from the respondent and not using anonymity as an excuse um, not, to, not to do anything. Okay, thank you. The next one is from Tam Beveridge. We've only ever brought in legal advice for health and safety reported risks in extreme cases by exception. You mentioned that if you have a psychosocial risk complaint, particularly one that calls out bullying or harassment, that you should seek legal advice before proceeding. I'd like to know the higher need for legal advice for these psychosocial risks slash complaints in comparison with physical risks. Ruth? Uh, I think, Fiona, that may have been a reflection on your slide, which was um, deciding when looking at workplace conflict, I think. I think the, sh the short answer is that there isn't anything in psychosocial hazards or risks um, in particular which says uh, um, you really should be seeking legal advice in relation to these risks. Um, so there's not there's not a sort of a heightened risk as a result of or sorry there, there isn't um, a more of a reason to seek legal advice in relation to the approach that you should you, that you should take um, in terms of psychosocial hazards and risks. I mean it's the the, the same psychosocial um, psychological injuries are the same as as a sort of a physical injury in that sense and the risks of those injuries should be treated in the same way I think what Fiona was getting at was that um, when you receive a complaint um, employees can um, look at employees can use language like I feel as though I'm being bullied at, by way of example I can feel like I, I feel as though I'm being bullied and um, or they might say that they're being harassed in the workplace and the immediate thought is they've used this legal terminology, I've got to hand this over to a lawyer to investigate this or I've got to get an external firm involved to investigate this. When in actual fact, if you look at the substance of the complaint, there might be some alternative ways of 
managing the complaint. And I think Fiona was suggesting that if you have some doubts about what the complaint amounts to or the risks associated with the complaint, then it's a good idea to speak to a lawyer about those risks. So Paul Amos has said, it looks like in Victoria, it's about employees only. Do the acts in other states, et cetera, allow for all persons or just employees in relation to requirements to control and reduce risks? The, yes, the model, the model laws, the model laws are around the, um, a PCBU and the obligations that a PCBU has but then there will also be obligations on officers and workers in the model WHS laws, which are connected to that primary duty of the PCBU. Um, but that is basically in the same form across all other, the general duty is in the same form in all states and territories. Uh, Belinda Winter says, have you received feedback from clients that they've noticed changes in their workplace culture after training on difficult conversations? Um, I can answer that one for you. Absolutely, we have, yes. Uh, we have very much received feedback that people um, have found having difficult conversations not so difficult uh, after the training um, and through practice, people have actually really welcomed challenging conversations and found it much, much easier. So, yes, thank you for the question. Um, and I think, should we make this the last one, Ruth? Yeah. This is from uh, Dave. Dave's made a comment, I think, and I just want to acknowledge that, that uh, which is very good. And Dave, said, Dave Sutherland has said that analysing what successful teams are doing can provide guidance on how to address behaviours in underperforming teams. Yes, agree, very true. Yeah. Um, and the question here is, with anonymous complaints, what happens when the respondent refuses to answer the allegations because they don't know who has made the complaint? Are there natural justice implications around this? Um, there, uh, I mean, I think we've sort of talked about this earlier. The, um, there may be, I mean, obviously there are some limitations on um, how far you can push the investigation if the um, respondent is refusing to be involved and perhaps it might be seen as reasonable for the respondent um, not to be involved if they're if they're saying that, uh, sorry, if they don't know the details of the person who has made the complaint. I mean, I don't know that there's a blanket rule that can be applied to this. Um, there's no, um, I mean, you need to look procedural fairness or natural justice sort of really only arises in the context of potential unfair dismissal claims. It's not sort of something that exists at large. There might be an obligation under um, a policy that an organisation has to afford natural justice. And on that basis, the respondent might be able to resist involvement. Um, it will, the organisation's response though will, will in part depend on um, assessing the risk. How, how, how serious is the behaviour that's being complained of? Because if the behaviour is very serious, then um, the organisation may have to take measures despite the fact that the respondent is choosing not to be involved. And the substance of the complaint may indicate that despite the fact that the person hasn't been identified, that the person has not identified themselves, the respondent still might have sufficient information 
to be able to respond to the allegations that have been made against them. And therefore, um, there, is a, there is an issue with them declining to be involved in the investigation in circumstances where they could respond to the allegations. So um, there, it will need to be managed on a case-by-case -case basis. There is no blanket rule which says that just because a person, a complainant is anonymous, that somehow an organisation can choose to ignore the complaint and not deal with it. Particularly, as I said, if the behaviour involved um, indicates a significant hazard. Okay, so we do have one last question. Do we have any time or are we out of time, Marie? Uh, I think we're at 22, but we can take it on. All on. right, this is the very last question, I promise. Um, so what if a bullying complaint is made in confidence to HR with the request to not take further actions other than recording the complaint? Can this conversation be kept without taking further actions based on the OHS Act 2004 obligation to provide a safe working environment and address issues to prevent potential further psychosocial risk? Um, again, in, in a situation like that, I would be talking to the complainant and explaining to the complainant that um, steps need to be taken in order to, I, I don't think employers can just ignore complaints of that kind. Um, the first step will be, I think, to be working with that employee to explain, look, these are the steps that we need to take in order to prevent further injury to you and also perhaps explaining to the employee that if you are experiencing this behaviour and if you are experiencing this stress, then chances are there are other employees who are experiencing the same thing. So sort of appealing to the employee to say, look, this we need to look into this to protect not only you but to other employees as well. Um, the it is a difficult one because I can imagine that the employees will be stressed if they feel as though they want to make an anonymous complaint, and um, and then steps are taken which they feel are beyond their control. It may cause a lot of stress, but I don't think it's something that you can just you, your obligations are to look after your employees, and once notified of this hazard, steps need to be taken. Okay, I think that's it for now. Okay. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Um, please feel free to contact um, your uh, anyone at Dentons with any queries about today's presentation and also contact Fiona over at PAX People if you've got any questions about the um her discussion today enjoy Thanks, the rest of your day everyone. everyone thanks fiona thank you bye